Chapter 12 of In the Oregon Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theoden Humphrey. In the Oregon Country by George Palmer Putnam. The God Mountain of Puget Sound. Part 2. The chill before sunrise was upon him as he reached the last curve of the dome. Sunrise and he struck the summit together. Together, sunrise and he looked over the glacis. They saw within a great hollow, all covered with the whitest of snow, save at the center, where a black lake lay deep in a well of purple rock. At the eastern end of this lake was a small, irregular plain of snow, marked by three stones, like mountains. Toward these the miser sprang rapidly, with full sunshine streaming after him over the snows. The first monument he examined with keen looks. It was tall as a giant man, and its top was fashioned into the grotesque likeness of a salmon's head. He turned from this to inspect the second. It was of similar height, but bore at its apex an object in shape like the regular flame of a torch. As he approached, he presently discovered that this was an image of the camas bulb in stone. These two semblances of prime necessities of Indian life delayed him but an instant, and he hastened on to the third monument, which stood apart on a perfect level. The third stone was capped by something he almost feared to behold, lest it should prove other than his hopes. Every word of Taminoas had thus far proved veritable, but might there not be a bitter deceit at the last? The miser trembled. Yes, Taminoas was trustworthy, the third monument was as the old man anticipated. It was a stone elk head, such as it appears in earliest summer, when the antlers are sprouting lustily under their rough jacket of velvet. "'You remember Boston Tyee,' continued Hamachu. "'That elk was the old man's Taminoas, the incarnation for him of the universal Taminoas.' He therefore was right joyous at this good omen of protection, and his heart grew big and swollen with hope as the black salmonberry swells in a swamp in June. He threw down his ikta, every impediment he laid down upon the snow, and unwrapping his two picks of elk horn, he took the stoutest and began to dig in the frozen snow at the foot of the elk head monument. No sooner had he struck the first blow than he heard behind him a sudden puff, such as a seal makes when it comes to the surface to breathe. Turning round, much startled, he saw a huge otter just clambering up over the edge of the lake. The otter paused and struck on the snow with his tail, whereupon another otter and another appeared until, following their leader in slow, solemn file, were twelve other otters, marching toward the miser. The twelve approached and drew up in a circle around him. 
Each was twice as large as any otter ever seen. Their chief was four times as large as the most gigantic otter ever seen in the regions of Wolga, and certainly was as great as a seal. When the twelve were arranged, their leader skipped to the top of the elk-head stone and sat there between the horns. Then the whole thirteen gave a mighty puff in chorus. The hunter of Hyakwa was for a moment abashed at his uninvited ring of spectators. But he had seen Otter before, and bagged them. These he could not waste time to shoot, even if a phalanx so numerous were not formidable. Besides, they might be Taminoas. He took to his pick and began digging stoutly. He soon made way in the snow and came to solid rock beneath. At every thirteenth stroke of his pick, the fugleman otter tapped with his tail on the monument. Then the choir of lesser otters tapped together with theirs on the snow. This caudal action produced a dull muffled sound, as if there were a vast hollow below. Digging with all his force, by and by the seeker for treasure began to tire, and laid down his elk-horn spade to wipe the sweat from his brow. Straightway the fugleman otter turned, and swinging his tail, gave the weary man a mighty thump on the shoulder, and the whole band, imitating, turned, and backing inward, smote him with centripetal tails until he resumed his labors, much bruised. The rock lay first in plates, then in scales. These it was easy to remove. Presently, however, as the miser pried carelessly at a larger mass, he broke his elkhorn tool. Fugleman Otter leaped down and, seizing the supplemental pick between his teeth, mouthed it over to the digger. Then the amphibious monster took in the same manner the broken pick and bore it round the circle of his suite, who inspected it with puffs. These strange, magical proceedings disconcerted and somewhat baffled the miser, but he plucked up heart, for the prize was priceless, and worked on more cautiously with his second pick. At last its bows and the regular thumps of the otter's tails called forth a sound hollower and hollower. His circle of spectators narrowed so that he could feel their panting breath as they bent curiously over the little pit he had dug. The crisis was evidently at hand. He lifted each scale of rock more delicately. Finally, he raised a scale so thin that it cracked into flakes as he turned it over. Beneath was a large square cavity. It was filled to the brim with Hayakwa. He was a millionaire. The otters recognized him as the favorite of Taminoas and retired to a respectful distance. For some moments he gazed on his treasure, taking thought of his future grandeur among the dwellers by Huelga. He plunged his arm deep as he could go, there was still nothing but the precious shells. 
He smiled to himself in triumph. He had wrung the secret from Taminoas. Then, as he withdrew his arm, the rattle of the Hyakwa recalled him to the present. He saw that noon was long past, and he must proceed to reduce his property to possession. The Hyakwa was strung upon long, stout sinews of elk in bunches of fifty shells on each side. Four of these he wound about his waist, three he hung across each shoulder, five he took in each hand, twenty strings of pure white Hyakwa, every shell large, smooth, unbroken, beautiful. He could carry no more. Hardly even with this could he stagger along. He put down his burden for a moment, while he covered up the seemingly untouched wealth of the deposit carefully with the scale stones, and brushed snow over the hole. The miser never dreamed of gratitude, never thought to hang a string of the buried treasure about the salmon and camas Tamanoa stones, and two strings around the elk head. No, all must be his own, all he could carry now, and the rest for the future. He turned and began his climb toward the crater's edge. At once the otters, with a mighty puff in concert, took up their line of procession, and plunging into the black lake, began to beat the water with their tails. The miser could hear the sound of splashing water as he struggled upward through the snow, now melted and yielding. It was a long hour of harsh toil and much backsliding before he reached the rim and turned to take one more view of this valley of good fortune. As he looked, a thick mist began to rise from the lake center where the otters were splashing. Under the mist grew a cylinder of black cloud, utterly hiding the water. Terrible are storms in the mountains, but in this looming mass was a terror more dread than any hurricane of ruin ever bore within its wild vortexes. Taminoas was in that black cylinder, and as it strode forward, chasing in the very path of the miser, he shuddered, for his wealth and his life were in danger. However, it might be but a common storm. Sunlight was bright as ever overhead in heaven, and all the lovely world below lay dreamily fair in that afternoon of summer at the feet of the rich man who now was hastening to be its king. He stepped from the crater edge and began his descent. Instantly, the storm overtook him. He was thrown down by its first assault, flung over a rough bank of iciness, and lay at the foot, torn and bleeding, but clinging still to his precious burden. Each hand still held its five strings of Hyakwa. In each hand he bore a nation's ransom. He staggered to his feet against the blast. Utter night was around him, 
night as if daylight had forever perished, had never come into being from chaos. The roaring of the storm had also deafened and bewildered him with its wild uproar. Present in every crash and thunder of the gale was a growing undertone, which the miser well knew to be the voice of Taminoas. A deadly shuddering shook him. Heretofore that potent unseen had been his friend and guide. There had been awe, but no terror in his words. Now the voice of Taminoas was inarticulate, but the miser could divine in that sound an unspeakable threat of wrath and vengeance. Floating upon this undertone were sharper Taminoas voices, shouting and screaming almost sneeringly, Ha ha! Hayakwa! Ha ha ha! Whenever the miser essayed to move and continue his descent, a whirlwind caught him, and with much ado tossed him hither and thither, leaving him at last flung and imprisoned in a pinching crevice, or buried to the eyes in a snowdrift, or gnawed by lacerating lava jaws. Sharp torture the old man was encountering, but he held fast to his Hayakwa. The blackness grew ever deeper and more crowded with perdition, the din more impish, demoniac, and devilish, the laughter more appalling, the miser more and more exhausted with vain buffeting, he determined to propitiate exasperated Taminoas with a sacrifice. He threw into the black cylinder storm his left handful, five strings of precious Hayakwa. Somewhat long-winded is thy legend, Hamachu, great medicine man of the squally Amish, quoth I. Why didn't the old fool drop his wampum, shell out, as one might say, and make tracks? Well, well, continued Hamachu, when the miser had thrown away his first handful of Hayakwa, there was a momentary lull in elemental war, and he heard the otters puffing around him invisible. Then the storm renewed, blacker, louder, harsher, crueler than before, and over the dread undertone of the voice of Taminoas, Taminoas' voices again screamed, Ha! Ha! and it seemed as if Taminoa's hands, or the paws of the demon otters, clutched at the miser's right handful and tore at his shoulder and waist belts. So, while darkness and tempest still buffeted the hapless old man and thrust him away from his path, and while the roaring was wickeder than the roars of tens and tens of bears, when a hungered they pounce upon a plain of Camus, gradually wounded and terrified, he flung away string after string of Hayakwa, gaining never any notice of such sacrifice, except an instant's lull of the cyclone, and a puff from the invisible otters. The last string he clung to long, and before he threw it to be caught and whirled after its fellows, he tore off a single bunch of fifty shells. But upon this, too, the storm laid its clutches. 
in the final desperate struggle the old man was wounded so sternly that when he had thrown into the formless chaos instinct with Taminoas his last propitiatory offering he sank and became insensible it seemed a long slumber to him but at last he awoke the jagged moon was just paling overhead and he heard skykey the blue jay foe to magic singing welcome to sunrise it was the very spot whence he started at morning he was hungry and felt for his bag of camas and pouch of smoke leaves there indeed by his side were the elk sinew strings of the bag and the black stone pipe bowl but no bag no camas no kinnikinick the whole spot was thick with camas plants strangely out of place on the mountainside and overhead grew a large arbutus tree with glistening leaves ripe for smoking the old man found his hardwood fire sticks safe under the herbage, and soon twirled a light, and nurturing it in dry grass, kindled a cheery fire. He plucked up camas, set it to roast, and laid a store of the arbutus leaves to dry on a flat stone. After he had made a hearty breakfast on the chestnut-like camas bulbs, and, smoking the thoughtful pipe, was reflecting on the events of yesterday, he became aware of an odd change in his condition. He was not bruised and wounded from head to foot as he expected, but very stiff only. And as he stirred, his joints creaked like the creak of a lazy paddle upon the rim of a canoe. Skykey, the blue jay, was singularly familiar with him, hopping from her perch in the arbutus and alighting on his head. As he put his hand to dislodge her, he touched his scratching stick of bone and attempted to pass it, as usual, through his hair. The hair was matted and interlaced into a network, reaching fully two L's down his back. Taminoas, thought the old man. Chiefly, he was conscious of a mental change. He was calm and content. Hyakwa and wealth seemed to have lost their charms for him. Tacoma, shining like gold and silver and precious stones of gayest luster, seemed a benign comrade and friend. All the outer world was cheerful and satisfying. He thought he had never awakened to a fresher morning. He was a young man again, except for that unusual stiffness and unmelodious creaking in his joints. He felt no apprehension of any presence of a deputy, Taminoas, sent by Taminoas to do malignities upon him in the lonely wood. Great nature had a kindly aspect, and made its divinity perceived only by the sweet notes of birds and hum of forest life, and by a joy that clothed his being. And now he found in his heart a sympathy for man and a longing to meet his old acquaintances down by the shores of Wolga. He rose and started on the downward way, smiling and sometimes laughing heartily at the strange croaking, moaning, cracking, and rasping of his joints. 
But soon, motion set the lubricating valves at work, and the sockets grew slippery again. He marched rapidly, hastening out of loneliness into society. The world of wood, glade, and stream seemed to him strangely altered. Old, colossal trees, firs behind which he had hidden when on the hunt, cedars under whose drooping shade he had lurked, were down and lay athwart his path, transformed into immense mossy mounds, like barrows of giants, over which he must clamber wearily, lest he sink and be half-stifled in the dust of rotten wood. Had Taminoas been widely at work in that eventful night? Or had the spiritual change the old man felt affected his views of the outer world? Traveling downward, he advanced rapidly, and just before sunset came to the prairies where his lodge should be. Everything had seemed to him so totally altered that he tarried a moment in the edge of the woods to take an observation before approaching his home. There was a lodge indeed in the old spot, but a newer and far handsomer one than he had left on the fourth evening before. A very decrepit old squaw, ablaze with vermilion and decked with countless strings of hyaqua and costly beads, was seated on the ground near the door, tending a kettle of salmon, whose blue and fragrant steam mingled pleasantly with the golden haze of sunset. She resembled his own squaw in countenance, as an ancient smoked salmon is like a newly dried salmon. If she was indeed his spouse, she was many years older than when he saw her last, and much better dressed than the respectable lady had ever been during his miserly days. He drew near quietly. The bedizened dame was crooning a chant, very dolorous, like this. My old man has gone, gone, gone. My old man to Tacoma has gone. To hunt the elk, he went long ago. When will he come down, 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 down to the salmon pot and me? He has come from Tacoma down, 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 down to the salmon pot and thee, shouted the reformed miser, rushing forward to supper with his faithful wife. And how did Penelope explain the mystery? I asked. If you mean the old lady, replied Hamachu, she was my grandmother, and I'd thank you not to call names. She told my grandfather that he had been gone many years. She could not tell how many, having dropped her tally stick in the fire by accident that very day. She also told him how, in despite of the entreaties of many a chief who knew her economic virtues and prayed her to become the mistress of his household, she had remained constant to the absent and forever kept the hopeful salmon pot boiling for his return. She had distracted her mind from the bitterness of sorrow by trading in camas and magic herbs, and had thus acquired a genteel competence. The excellent dame then exhibited with great complacency her gains, 
most of which she had put in the portable and secure form of personal ornament, making herself a resplendent magazine of valuable frippery. Little cared the repentant sage for such things, but he was rejoiced to be again at home and at peace, and near his own early gains of Hyakwa and treasure, buried in a place of security. These, however, he no longer over-esteemed and hoarded. He imparted whatever he possessed, material treasures or stores of wisdom and experience, freely to all the land. Every dweller by Huelga came to him now for advice how to chase the elk, how to troll or spear the salmon, and how to propitiate Tamanoas. He became the great medicine man of the Siwashes, a benefactor to his tribe and his race. Within a year after he came down from his long nap on the side of Tacoma, a child, my father, was born to him. The sage lived many years, beloved and revered, and on his deathbed, long before the Boston Tillicum or any blanketeers were seen in the regions of Volga, he told this story to my father, as a lesson and a warning. My father, dying, told it to me, but I, alas, have no son. I grow old, and lest this wisdom perish from the earth, and Tamanoas be again obliged to interpose against avarice, I tell the tale to thee, O Boston Tyee. Mayest thou and thy nation not disdain this lesson of an earlier age, but profit by it and be wise. So far, Hamachu recounted his legend without the palisades of Fort Nisqually, and motioned in expressive pantomime at the close that he was dry with big talk and would gladly wet his whistle. End of chapter 12